0: Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word, and we ask God that as we, as we do turn our attention to your word, that you would speak clearly to us, give us ears to hear what you want to say to us, and we ask for this, in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can open it to First Corinthians chapter five. First Corinthians chapter five. We're continuing this series, and while you're turning there, let me set us up this way. Many of us are familiar with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, They oversee in our country the quality of the food uh, that is sold and served in the United States. And uh, I've met a couple different people through my time in ministry that have worked at churches whose job it was for their company uh, to make sure that the food that their company was uh, like producing was meeting the quality standards of the FDA. Here's the problem, though. The FDA's food purity standards may not be as high as you and I would like them to be. And so I would like uh, to ruin your lunch. Uh, And I have with me uh, a few examples uh, of the FDA's food purity standards for different items that we commonly use. Okay, let me walk you through some of these. First one up is peanut butter. Okay, yeah, I know. (laughs) The FDA says that if peanut butter averages 30 insect fragments per 3.5 ounces, they will pull it from the shelves. You know what that means though, that if per 3.5 ounces, peanut butter only has 25 rodent hairs or insect fragments, then it's probably on your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Okay. Enjoy that. Next up, coffee beans. Yeah. That was like an audible groan. Like, don't do it. The FDA says that it will remove coffee beans from stores and from restaurants Uh, from the shelf if there are one or more live insects in two or more consecutive containers on the shelf. What that means is that you can have one or more live insects in your coffee beans as long as it's in every other container on the shelf and not two consecutive containers. That's fun. All right. Mushrooms. Some of you are like, I don't care about mushrooms. Others, here we go. All right. All right. Um, The FDA says that mushrooms cannot be sold if there are 20 or more maggots in the mushrooms per 15 grams. I kid you not. You can look this up, which means if there are only 19 maggots in the mushrooms, it is sent to Papa John's and on your pizza. So have a good lunch today. All right. Pasta sauce or tomato sauce. Okay. Okay. The FDA says that if tomato or pasta sauce has more than 10 fly eggs or two maggots per 500-gram can, that they will pull it off the shelf, which means as long as there are only nine fly eggs and one maggot in your pasta sauce. uh, Enjoy lunch, okay? Last one, okay? Hot dogs. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to actually talk about what's in our hot dogs. All right, let's uh, let's just be blind about that. Here's the point. One, you're not as hungry as you were at the beginning of this sermon, and so I've got your attention, okay? Uh, Two is this, really, uh, that the FDA tries to set their standard high for purity, but there's always room for some impurity in it. What we're going to talk about today is a little bit more serious than that. Our text that we've come to is going to bring us into a discussion around the idea of God's holiness. And when we talk about God's holiness, we have to understand that there is no room for impurity whatsoever, there is no space for cutting corners or lowering standards when it comes to the holiness of God. God is holy. He demands 100% purity. And I think a case can be made, a very strong case throughout your entire Bible, that God's holiness is life and death serious. Think about this. In your Old Testament, when Nadab and Abihu walked into the tabernacle, into the presence of a holy God with unauthorized fire, what happened to them? Boom, they're dead. Right? What about when the, uh, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah, well-intentioned, reaches up in your Old Testament to steady the Ark of the Covenant and he touches it, what happens? He's dead right away because the Holy God lives there. You can't touch that. In our study last fall through the book of Acts, or last all year last year, but in the fall, we, or it was actually in the spring, uh, where we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, what happened? Boom, they were dead. It was a practice on the one day of a year called the Day of Atonement when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. What they would do is they would wrap a rope around their waist so that they could go into the Holy of Holies because there was always this risk that if something went wrong or if they didn't do it right, then when they got into the Holy of Holies, because of God's holiness and his inability to be around sin, he's not going to be around sin, so if they did something wrong, boom, they would be dead. And the other people are like, we're not going in there. Are you out of your mind? We'll just pull that dead body right out of there, and we're not going to go in after them. I mean, God's holiness is life and death serious. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple, what does Isaiah do? He falls down begging for his life. That's what he does. He falls down and he begs for his life. In the same picture in Revelation chapter 1, when the apostle John, who was very close relationally to Jesus during his earthly ministry, turns around and sees the glorified, resurrected Jesus, what does he do? The text tells us he falls on his face as though dead. See the holiness of God is life and death serious. God's holiness, it's his defining quality in the Bible. It's the only quality of God that is communicated in triplets or in triplicate throughout your scriptures, right? The, the angels in Isaiah chapter 6, they don't fly around going, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. No, they fly around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And if you were here Wednesday night or you watched online while David was teaching, which again, how awesome was that? Uh, he communicated to us in that lesson that when the, in the Hebrew language, when they would repeat a word just one time, one repetition, it meant they were trying to make a point. So when they did it three times... It's stop what you're doing and pay attention. God is holy. In his earthly ministry, Jesus never prayed loving father, but he did pray holy father. He did pray holy father. Look, God's book is called the Holy Bible. God's spirit is called the Holy Spirit. The land that he gave the Israelites was called the holy land because it was set aside and to be kept pure. No room for impurity, no room for cutting corners, no room for lowering standards. God is not the FDA. He does not look at our sin. He does not look at our sin and say, oh, well, I guess it's not that bad. It doesn't seem like it's going to hurt anybody. Or, man, as long as you only have one or two idols. But if you have two or more idols, I will remove you. But as long as you only have one, you're going to scoot by. That's okay. God does not look at that. Now, this is a difficult thing to talk through. But Paul talks about it throughout all of his letters. And here's the thing. When Paul's writing about it, he's writing to Christians. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian... You have not been baptized into Christ. You've not made that decision with your life. I understand. You get to listen in a little bit to a conversation about the holiness of God that Paul is having with churches where he emphasizes to them how important it is that they take the holiness of God and their own personal pursuit of holiness with the utmost level of seriousness. It's extremely important. Look at some examples. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the church at Ephesus, said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. When he's writing to the church in Rome, he wrote these words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because this is your spiritual act of worship. This is your spiritual worship. He always begins with, start with Jesus, and the gratitude that you have for what he's done, and pursue holiness with your life. In the church to Corinth, in his second letter that we'll get to later on this year, he wrote these words, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God in our lives. It is clear through the entire Bible that God takes holiness very, very seriously, and there's no room for mixing other things in and not taking it seriously on our end. Now, two quick things I want you to keep in mind, context-wise, before we get to the text, okay? Keep all that in mind, and now keep these other two things in mind as well. First, it would be a mistake for us to take what we just discussed about holiness, and then and God's demand for holiness in our lives, and then assume that it's a prerequisite for our salvation, that it's somehow a condition for our salvation. I want you to hear me very clearly, because we have to talk about this for the rest of the sermon, but you need to do it within this context. You do not need to make yourself holy before God will save you. That is not how it works. You are saved because of the grace that is in Jesus Christ. You're not saved because you do something. So this is not a prerequisite to your salvation. However, it would be equally, in my mind, a mistake To assume that because of the presence of God's grace in your life, that it's an excuse for you to apply indifference to the demand for holiness in your life. Let me say that again. It would be equally a mistake for those of us who are in Christ to assume that simply because the grace of God exists in our life, that we are now having permission to apply indifference to his demand for holiness in our life. We can't do that. The seriousness, please hear this, the seriousness, if you are a follower of Jesus of your pursuit of personal holiness, is evidence of the gratitude that you have for his grace in your life. The seriousness that you pursue personal holiness with, and you take his holiness with, is evidence of the level of gratitude that you have for his grace in your life. Dallas Willard said it this way. He said, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. You cannot earn your way, but it is not opposed to you putting some effort into your own personal pursuit of holiness. That's the first thing. second thing I want you to keep in mind is this. Remember the tone of this text. Okay? He's not in the room this service, so it's a little easier to say this. My father-in-law is one of my favorite preachers of all time. I could listen to him preach all day long. and So when I have a week where I'm not writing a sermon, it is a joy to sit in this room and listen to him preach. And last week, he hit it out of the park. He set all of us up to have these difficult conversations around hard text by explaining with great detail the tone that Paul's taking. And Paul explains the tone that he's approaching these hard topics with at the end of chapter 4. When he says the tone is not to be some sort of guardian, you remember how he said that? He's not a guardian that comes in and just imposes his will over you and talks about, you will be holy or you're going to die. It's not like that. We're not going to talk about it from that tone. The tone that he takes is one of a loving father, a a father that loves his kids that says, man, you're not going down the right path. And I have to warn you because I love you. And I'm going to warn you that you're not headed in the right direction. And you have to take this more seriously in your life because you're headed down a path of destruction. That's the tone that the apostle Paul takes. He's firm, but man, it's it's completely saturated with love. He loves these Christians and wants what's best for them. See, Paul recognizes that when you see holiness, and I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, I really hope that you have. When you see somebody taking holiness seriously and they're living it out, man, it's a beautiful thing. It's not this thing that's like, oh man, they must be under the thumb. Like they're, they're being controlled by somebody. They're being manipulated. When you see somebody, I've got multiple people in my life that I've seen. Many of you have followed the Lord so faithfully. And there's a few people in my life that I would say, man, I love watching them love God. Sounds weird, but the closeness and the intimacy that they share with the father just spills into my life. It's inspirational It calls me to step up and I see the seriousness that they take their pursuit of holiness and it rubs off on me. And the the Apostle Paul is saying that you're surrounded by this culture that is so ingrained in sin. And you, even though they're only about three years old spiritually, you have this responsibility to take your own personal holiness so serious because the world around you is watching. And they will determine many of the thoughts they have about God based on the lives of the Christians that they interact with. And you know that that's true. So keep that in mind as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1, break it into a couple of different sections, and try to wrap our mind around what Paul's trying to say to them. Okay? Let's do this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not practice. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud of this. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. Nothing but encouragement this Valentine's Day at New Hope, huh? He says it was reported. That, that word is uh, better translated, in my opinion, heard. It's literally heard. I have heard this news. We don't know how far this news had traveled, but we, knew that, we know that it had reached the Apostle Paul. And this news, he says, deals with sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia. It's the most common word in your New Testament that's used to describe sexual immorality. It it describes uh, all kinds of different sexual sins, all kinds of different things that took place, sexually speaking, that were outside the bounds of the covenant marriage relationship. And so many different things that this word, it's where we get our word pornography, right? And it's it's a word that communicates that you're so engulfed in lust and sexual sin that you're not Connected to God and the life that He's called you to live. So he says there's some sexual morality among you. And then he says, and this is the kind of sexual morality that even the pagans don't practice. What he's saying there is this they lived in a Greco Roman world. We've talked about Corinth, we've explained how this city was so engulfed in sexual sin. A Greco Roman culture had a very lax morality. Can't for the life of me think of another culture like it, right? Uh, they just didn't take things very seriously. You could participate in really anything you wanted to as long as you weren't hurting anybody. And even in that culture, this particular type of sexual immorality was viewed as off-limits. And he says this is the, th- so it's an incestuous relationship. It's a relationship where a man is having sex with his father's wife, his stepmother. And they're stepping back, and, and, and Paul is completely blown away by this. But what blows him away even more than that is that the church seems to be proud of it. Not proud necessarily that this is, but proud that they're tolerating it. Proud that they're a place where you can just come and it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. And Paul is blown away that this type of sin is taking place around them. In fact, that's what's more shocking to him than even the sin itself. It's like, I can't believe that this person's in the church. And they're participating in this type of a sin, and you're doing nothing about it. Now, many people think that this person was probably a leader in the community or in the church. This man was a leader in the community and maybe even a leader in the church. But for Paul, he doesn't give us the details of that. Why? Because it doesn't matter to him. Because for Paul, it doesn't matter how influential you are, how successful you are, or even how much good you've done. You don't get a pass. It's not, God's not the FDA. You don't get to mix a little bit of impurity into his holiness just because you've accomplished something. And I don't know about you, but even in the Christian culture around us today, has that not become more and more true? You cannot mock God and his holiness. And Paul is saying enough is enough. It's time to call this person out. So he says it's time for you to institute some church discipline. Like I can't believe you're even allowing this person to be in your midst right now. So he tells them, it's time for this guy to be cast out of the church. And he does that for two reasons. One, you've got a culture that says that the type of sin that the church is tolerating is completely off limits. What are you doing to your witness? That's what Paul is saying. What are you doing? You're supposed to live different. You're supposed to stand out, so you draw people to the gospel and you're tolerating the very things that they say are even off limits. What are you doing to your, to your witness? Your ability to show people the life and the love of Jesus is tarnished because your inability or unwillingness to deal with the sin in your midst. The other reason is, he says, turn this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his soul may be saved on the day of judgment. Paul uses very similar language in other letters that he wrote in the New Testament when he's talking about this. He's almost always not talking about physical death when he says that. What he's talking about is this. And again, he's talking to Christians. He's clear about this. This man who professes to follow Jesus, who is unrepentant, unwilling to repent of the sin he's engaged in, and you're now celebrating it, needs to be pushed out of the congregation for this reason, to get his attention, to shake him back to reality, to help him come to his senses, that maybe this type of punishment will wake him up enough to repent and then be restored to the church. Hear me, every time church discipline is instituted in your New Testament, the goal is never to shame someone. Remember the tone of the text from chapter four. Paul says, I'm not telling you these things to shame you. I'm telling them to to warn you that if you are engaged in unrepentant sin, trying to hide it like it's not actually happening, and everyone knows it's happening, and everyone's proud of the fact that you're allowed to sin that way in their midst and they're not going to judge you, Paul is saying you're in trouble. You're headed down a path of destruction. You need to take sin seriously in your life because God will not be mocked and his holiness has no room for cutting corners or lowering standards. This is serious stuff. It's life... And death serious, so get him out of the congregation, so that he might come to his senses and be restored. That's the purpose of church discipline. It's not to shame someone and prove them wrong. It's to help them come to their senses, repent of their sins, and come back into the church family. Now he turns his attention to the church in general. In verse six through eight, he says, "This your boasting is not good about this situation." Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you already are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." That word boasting is the same word he used that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It means literally to recommend yourself. So what they're saying is uh, we are boasting about our tolerance of things. We would recommend ourselves to be a picture of a model church. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. You should not be boasting about yourselves. You are not the picture of a model church. Don't you understand that playing with a little bit of sin always ends up getting worse? And he turns to this analogy in their day for, for helping them understand. He's going to use a, a picture that would immediately resonate with them. And it somewhat resonates with us, but not quite with the same power. So let me walk you through this illustration that he uses. When Paul's writing this letter, they could not, when a snowstorm that they never actually had uh, was coming, could not run into Meyer or Kroger and go get an already baked set of bread. They could not. You could not go get a loaf of bread that was packaged perfectly and smelled so good. And you could buy different levels of quality from the cheap stuff all the way to the way overpriced, perfect bread that they sell on the shelf. You couldn't do that. And so everyone had to bake their own bread. And they had to do this on a weekly basis, all the time, baking their own bread. And what's interesting is that the recipe hasn't changed a whole lot from where, when they did it to when we did it. There aren't too many ways that you can bake bread. My David, my father-in-law's dad, uh, his name is uh, Glenn Bourne, uh, he would bake bread all the time. And every once in a while, uh, when we could fight all the other relatives for some, we would get a loaf or two in our house. And I can't tell you, uh, I've never had a better piece of bread. Uh, And my kids would get through all of it, but I got my one piece. And I was always grateful for it. There's something about it. And so that's what they would do. They would bake the bread. And the ingredients that they used as uh, an ingredient we don't use as often. They used leaven. We used yeast, okay? And you take a little bit of yeast. Some of you might bake bread, and you know this, and it goes a long way. You don't put very much yeast into the dough that you're going to bake bread with, and it, all of a sudden, it just spreads, and the whole loaf of bread will rise. Well, in their day, they didn't have access to all of this, and, and there's actually a difference between the leaven and the yeast. I always assumed they were the same thing. Shows my ignorance. I'm just like, that's the same stuff, right? It does the same thing. And, and Paul is pointing out that the difference between these two ingredients is so key to understanding this passage, okay, the difference between these two. So with yeast, you put a little bit in and it goes a long way, right? It does the trick. But Paul is saying what they used, leaven, was anything but the yeast that we use today. Our yeast today is clean, uh, it's wholesome, uh, and leaven was anything but that, okay? Here's how they would make leaven. They would get all the ingredients for their dough and they would start mixing it all together and they would start kneading the dough and they would start getting it exactly how they wanted. Then right before they baked the bread, they would pull off just a little bit of a piece and they would go and they would put it in the cupboard and they would let that piece sit in the cupboard for a week at a time. Now... Remember, there is no climate-controlled rooms. This was a hot climate. And so you just picture what would happen to that little clump of dough over the course of a full week, and they would do that. And then they would bake their bread, and they'd serve their family for the week. Well, the next week, they'd get all the ingredients together, and they would start making their dough, and they'd go into the cupboard, and they would get their now fermented Dough. Over the course of a week, it would ferment, and it would go from being dough to leaven. Then they would get the leaven out of the cupboard, and they would start working it into the dough. They would work it into the dough. Okay? This is important. I promise. They would work it into the dough. Then they would grab a little bit of a piece off, and they would go, and they would put it in the cupboard, and they would bake their bread, serve their family. And this cycle would happen over and over and over again. This is how they would bake their bread. Okay? Now, I want you to picture in a climate like that, a hot climate, picture what would happen to that dough. I mean, you'd have bacteria growing in it. It would sometimes have mold all in it, but yet every week they would grab it and they would continue to... I mean, it could have a head, two arms, and a tail growing out of it, and they were going to grab it and mix it into their dough to bake their bread. Here's the part that's even more gross to me, right? I want you to picture week after week they would make this bread and they would grab the bacteria-laden leaven and they would mix it into the dough, bake the bread, serve the family. The next week... They would grab it and grab it. So every week you'd grab your piece off to go put in the cupboard, it already was infected. Now imagine another week of bacteria, another week. And it would just, count in just a little bit, and they would mix it in there and it would go. And Paul is saying, what he's telling them right here, is that this is what sin is. They would do this all year long until the one day of the year called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where one day a year the Jewish people were told to rid themselves of all of the leaven among them at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then, as one commentator put it, the only way to break the chain of bacteria-laden bread was to ditch the whole batch and start fresh. And so every year they would do this. And this was done for their health, but it was also done to show them, it was to show the people what this was doing to them. And so Paul says, this is what sin does, right? You have your life, all the ingredients to your life. You've got a marriage and a job and you've got all these things that you're doing and you're working and then you just have this little sin not that big of a deal. Tolerate it. It's no big deal. And you just grab that little bit and you mix it in there. It's no big deal, right? And then the next week, you just a little bit more. Oh yeah, yeah, I'll get rid of it. I'll put it over there. I'll just hide it in the cupboard for a week. And then you grab a little bit more and you mix it in. And what happens is over time, it just begins to grow throughout your whole life. And Paul is saying, this is what the church has been doing with their sin. Over and over again, they just keep working it in as though it's not a big deal. And in our world, you know this is true. Many a times I've sat with people pleading with them to take holiness seriously, watching how that little secret sin has just destroyed someone's life. You think in your marriage that you're going to have a dynamic marriage when over here in the cupboard you're hiding a pornography addiction that no one knows about. No one's going to find out that whenever I'm by myself, I'm just going to go look at this pornography, and it's not going to infect the marriage bed. We think that we're cutting corners financially because we have to provide for our families. And so we're doing whatever it takes to get that nest egg built up. We're having conversations that shouldn't be happening, making deals that shouldn't be happening, taking jobs that we shouldn't be taking in an effort to provide. And we don't think that that's going to infiltrate the destiny of our children. The Apostle Paul is saying all it takes is just a little bit of leaven to ruin the whole batch. And then he says there's only one way to do away with this it is to rid yourself of all of it altogether. And every day, because of the mercy of God and the grace of God, start fresh. Every day, wake up starting over. In verses 9 through 13, for the sake of time, I'll just summarize it. He goes on and tells them, I'm not talking about people that aren't in the church. He literally says that. I'm not talking about the people out in the world. I'm not going to place Christian expectations on non-Christians. Maybe that's a whole sermon we need to hear Uh, for another, right? We could have used that one uh, election time. I'm not going to place Christian expectations on non-Christians and then judge them. They need God's grace. I need to share the gospel with them. And then when they are walking with the Lord, then yes, he says, we have to look at one another's lives and hold one another accountable. Look, I think Paul is telling us here, he's saying the only way that we're going to have influence in the world, and Paul says this, actually says it, what the world needs more than anything is for the church to step up and take holiness seriously. Stop tolerating it. Stop being cool. Stop being whimsical with it. Like, it doesn't matter. Take it seriously. The world needs it because they're watching. And then when they watch you live like them, why do they need Jesus? Look, if you want to have influence in the world, you have to live different from the world. A holy God no longer takes up residence in tabernacles and temples. But he has told us he takes up residence in our hearts. And look, God takes residence up in your heart so that he can make you holy and keep you holy. That's what we learn from this passage. That's his goal. That's what God wants to accomplish. And for too many Christians, we've, we've just taken Christian expectations, thrown it on everything we can, and we just sit around judging everything instead of actually holding one another accountable. A couple more things, real quick. Let me talk to the adults in the room. This is coming from a place of deep conviction. We need to stop raising the next generation so carelessly. Whether they're your children or the children you have the opportunity to influence. One example is we, we hand our young people these glowing rectangles called cell phones with no limits on them, allowing them to expose themselves to a portal of information and sin that they can't handle. Hear me, they can't carry the load of that level of information. And when there's no restrictions on these phones, we're handing them to them and saying, well, everybody else has one. All these other kids have it. I'm not gonna let my kid be the only kid that doesn't have one. Why? Why? And we hand it to them, but now, look, it's not bad to get your kid a cell phone, but it is bad to hand them something that can be that dangerous and not warn them and walk with them. And for too long, we've just let it go. So we have a generation of young people that are committing suicide at rates that are unheard of. We have a, a generation of young people being exposed to and becoming addicted to drugs that, that is at a rate that's unheard of. We have a generation of young people who are being exposed to and addicted to pornography at rates that are destroying their lives and their ability to understand and see sex in a healthy way. And we're sitting back and we're saying, well, hey, we don't want to come on too strong. I mean, we... Why are we taking it so carelessly? Young people, from the bottom of my heart, I cannot understand the pressure you're under. It's different. I've been a Christian for 20 years. 20 years ago, the things that when I first became a Christian that we would talk about that were not okay for Christians to engage in are just second nature now. The rate at which the world that you're growing up in is becoming more and more immoral, I I can't understand that pressure. My heart breaks. But I want you to understand that you have a God that loves you and cares for you so deeply and wants nothing more than to keep you from going down that path. And he's given you a way to do that. I'm going to close this way. The, The best way for us to take that next step, I think, is to begin with a place of gratitude. Holiness is about seeing God for who he is. Seeing God for who he is and from that place understanding who we are. Let me give you one illustration. I hope I can bring it home for you this way. This is a picture that I love. I I saw this on the news. was able to find the image of this picture. Um, This this is a West Virginia state trooper named D.C. Graham. That's his name. And state trooper Graham was driving when he saw a car on the interstate. Uh, going at a high rate of speed, swerving in and out of traffic there in West Virginia, barely missing, clipping other cars and crashing. They finally got the car to stop. He was able to get to the vehicle and found two adults in the front seat, both of them high out of their minds on heroin. And sitting in the back seat was this little guy in a car seat covered in his own vomit and a dirty diaper. Now, this state trooper could have simply said, hey, I've seen a lot of things, and the kid has to go to DCS, and, but he didn't. Scooped this little guy up, brought him back to headquarters, and right here bathed him. Gave him some time, allowed him to get a picture of an adult that maybe he had never had before. I love this picture because is that not exactly what God did to us? Found us, covered in the filth of our own sin, all the mistakes we've made, all the people we've hurt, all the things we regret, all the shame we've been carrying. And he found us in that state, and instead of leaving us there and saying, hey, you made your own mess, he scooped us up, and he cleaned us up, and he gave us a new home. So here's my question from the bottom of my heart. Does the life that you're living, does the seriousness with which you take His holiness and your own pursuit of holiness, does it prove that you're really grateful for that reality? Does it prove when someone watches you live because you take holiness, His holiness, and your own pursuit of holiness, does it prove that you are in a place of extreme gratitude for the God, for the God who resides in you to make you holy and keep you holy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hard conversations like this this morning, God. I I sometimes feel so overwhelmed by the world that we live in. I really do, and I I wonder. I I don't think I have what it takes to keep myself clean and keep myself from sinning. And yet I know, Father, that you have promised us that when we are weak, you are strong. That when we don't have what it takes, you have already shown us that you have what it takes. You have already won this battle that we're in. So would you help us, Father, through our worship, through our reading of your word, through our engaging with other believers, holding one another accountable, through the seriousness with which we take your holiness, Father, would you help us claim that victory day in and day out? And when we mess up and fall short, Father, would you help us wake up every day knowing that your mercies are new, your grace is new every single day, and you've afforded us the ability to start fresh every day. Help us grab onto that truth and live from a place of gratitude because of it. God, I ask you for this with all my heart in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.